This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. I had an opportunity this last weekend to see the new movie Fair Game about Ambassador Joe Wilson and his wife, Valerie Plame. The good news, it's a fine film. I recommend that you see it, and we're going to talk uh, in our second segment about our previous interviews with Ambassador Wilson, air a few clips uh, from those talks, and probably also uh, play some excerpts from Valerie Plame's book, Fair Game. The movie is a hybrid of that book and, uh, and Ambassador Wilson's book, The Politics of Truth. Sad to note, it's only opened in 46 theaters over this past weekend, and uh, it's not playing locally. I had to go to San Francisco to see it. I'm fairly confident it will come around, however, and we want to uh, uh, get you up to speed for uh, going to see it, which I know many of you are going to want to do. But in the meantime, let us begin this program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 11th of November. Undoubtedly, the most significant event to ever take place on this date was on 11-11-1918 when World War I ended. The armistice, which brought an end to hostilities, took place on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. In this uh, mind-boggling bloodbath, 9 million soldiers died, 21 million were wounded, and at least 5 million civilians were killed. The war came to a close largely because the United States came in on the side of the Western Allies. This evidently more than made up for the loss of Tsarist Russia, which underwent uh, the Communist Revolution in 1917 and uh, ceased fighting. World War I was called the War to End All Wars, which sadly turned out to be a good bit of propaganda. My grandfather had been in uniform during the conflict. I remember asking him as a small boy about that. I said they called it the war to end all wars, but it didn't. And I will never forget the look on my grandfather's face when he had to agree that no, it had not. Turned out in the unfair peace that followed the conflict, where Germany was blamed uh, for being the source of all the trouble, the harm inflicted on the German economy was instrumental in the subsequent rise of Hitler and the development of World War II. But it is certainly worth noting that on this date in 1918, the bloodbath finally stopped. Also on this date, exactly three years after the end of World War I, the Tomb of the Unknowns was dedicated at Arlington Cemetery by then-President Warren Harding. What else happened on this date? Well, on November 11th in 1572, the Danish astronomer Tycho Brahe noticed a new and unusual star, surpassing other stars in brilliancy. It was so brilliant it could be seen in daytime for about two weeks. It was a supernova and established for the scientific world that new stars could appear in the sky. Quite a revolutionary concept, even though people had noticed them for centuries. On November 11th, 1942, the American comedy The Road to Morocco opened up. It was the third of the road pictures featuring Bob Hope, Bing Crosby, and Dorothy L'Amour. If you've never seen a road picture, I can recommend them. They do generally have... Many good laughs sprinkled throughout. Yeah, they're world-class cheesy, but again, you know, there's, there's a few laughs there. On this date in 1965, Colonial Prime Minister Ian Smith declared Rhodesian independence 
as a way of resisting British pressure to adopt a constitution that would lead to black majority rule. The good news is that after some conflict, uh, Rhodesia did go down that road and in 1980 became the newly independent nation of Zimbabwe. That's the good news. The bad news is the man that took over 30 years ago at the time of independence, Robert Mugabe, is still running the country and running it badly. His regime is a disgrace, and so is the reaction of most of the world community, which has not stepped in to do something about it. And on November 11, 1968, during the Vietnam War, the U.S. launched Operation Commando Hunt, a bombing campaign to block communist traffic on the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Laos, coming back into South Vietnam. By 1973, nearly 2 million tons of bombs had fallen on Laos, but traffic on the trail continued. During the Vietnam War, more ordnance was dropped on Laos than in all of the theaters combined in World War II. What did that accomplish? From a military standpoint, apparently almost nothing. From a financial standpoint, it made a lot of people a lot of money. From a humanistic standpoint, I think it killed about a million people. Kind of a bad idea when you think about it, unless you're the guy that's, you know, profiting from it. Anyway, we'll try to resist dwelling on that sort of stuff today. Our quote of the day, we've been sitting on this one for a while, about a year actually, is, it appears that she does it for her own satisfaction. That was said by Al Setka of the Great Ape Trust about Bonnie, an orangutan in the zoo in Washington, D.C., who has learned to whistle to pass the time. Previously, no one thought orangutans could whistle. Our quip of the day comes from Francois Rafouche called, I think that's how you say it, who said, we confess our little faults to persuade people that we have no large ones. You know, I've admitted many times in this program, I don't have very good handwriting. As for larger faults, um, I'm, I'm not aware of any. Mr. Millen, can you think of any larger faults I have? Our stat of the day is that 27% of American voters say Sarah Palin is qualified to be president, while 67% say she is not. What I like is the fact that Republicans are apparently split on this issue. 47% say yes, 46% say no. No, we're not sure what they've been smoking. Here's the part I like. Apparently even Tea Party supporters are divided on Palin's qualifications. It's a dead heat. 48 yes, 48 no. And for our humor of the day, I want to thank Barb, who sent me an old email, but, you know, every so often these things resurface, and, you know, some are kind of timeless, like the one about how men are just happier people. Notes this email. A man has about six items in his bathroom. Toothbrush, toothpaste, shaving cream, razor, bar of soap, towel. The average number of items in a typical woman's bathroom is 337. And a man would not be able to identify more than about 20 of those items. Notes that a woman worries about the future until she gets a husband, whereas a man never worries about the future until he gets a wife. I like this one. A woman will dress up to go shopping, water the plants, empty the trash, answer the phone, read a book, or get the mail. A man will dress up for weddings and funerals. Mail notes further that a man will gladly pay $2 for a $1 item that he thinks he needs. 
Whereas a woman will pay $1 for a $2 item that she doesn't need, but it is on sale. And finally, in the eating out department, so when the bill arrives, Mike, Dave, and John will just throw a 20 down, even though the bill is only for $32.50. None of them will have anything smaller, and none will admit they actually want change back. Whereas when the gals get their bill, out come the pocket calculators. Let's jump right into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? According to the Week magazine, it was a good week last week for the outer space vote. After two, two U.S. astronauts cast their ballots via electronic means while orbiting 220 miles above the Earth in the International Space Station and traveling at 17,000 miles an hour. Oddly enough, Diebolt announced they actually cast five votes for Republicans. No, I'm just making that part up. And conversely, it was a bad week last week for traveling to locations of majestic isolation when it was revealed that Encel, a Nepali telecom firm, has constructed a new 3G facility on Mount Everest, which will allow climbers on the world's tallest mountain to make cell calls, send videos, and access the internet all the way to the top. Which, folks, is just wrong on so many levels, I don't know where to begin. How long can it be before someone puts in the aerial tram? And finally, it was kind of an ugly week last week for winning over voters. After a campaign to pass a ballot measure in Nevada accidentally set out automated calls to about 50,000 homes at 1 a.m. The measure, which would have changed the way Nevadans chose district court judges, oddly enough, didn't pass. And boy, I don't know about you, dear listener, but I can never recall getting quite so many robo-calls as this past election cycle. And from the Week magazine's Only in America file, we have the following item. The Hells Angels Motorcycle Club has now sued Saks Fifth Avenue and the Alexander McQueen Fashion House for using the Angels' winged Death Head logo. A similar logo appears on several items in a recent McQueen collection, and according to Fritz Clapp, and I'm not making that up, described as an intellectual property lawyer for the Outlaw Biker Group, there's no doubt in my mind the designer has seen the death head mark. I just want to say one thing. If your title is Intellectual Property Lawyer for the Hells Angels, your family must be proud. All right, we put off talking about the elections on last week's show, so let's talk a little bit about them today. One of the most notable stories from Election Day was the failure of Prop 19 here in California to pass. This had attracted international attention. Tim Dickinson, writing in Rollingstone.com, said the vote nevertheless represented real and immediate progress, knowing that because of Prop 19, drug legalization has now entered the political mainstream, and we may expect to see more such efforts in 2012. Gotta confess to being a little puzzled by the Sacramento Bee's attitude about this, which they titled by a piece uh, that said, Please, spare us the sequel to Prop 19. Said the Bee, Buzzkill though it may be, California voters sent a message this week. They are not comfortable with the state triggering a confrontation with federal authorities over the recreational use of marijuana. Leading up to Tuesday's vote on the much-hyped Prop 19, the federal government made crystal clear 
that while it's willing to abide medical marijuana in California and other states, it will not accept complete legalization. So there you have it. Experts think that the fact that Eric Holder, Barack Obama's attorney general, uh, came forward to say that, that it was still going to be a priority for the feds to deal with marijuana uh, may have swung the vote. Of course, it didn't help that no political authorities or major candidates would endorse it, including the Democratic Party. And that, uh, you know, part of the prison industrial complex, I guess you'd say, came forward to offer all the tired, incorrect opinions about why pot is bad. You know, the gateway drug nonsense, the fact that if it passed, one of the voter guides I was sent mentioned that, uh, you know, if this passed, why bus drivers would be smoking pot before they drove your kids to school. As we pointed out on this program, Eric Holder's claim that the feds were going to uh, crack down on marijuana was a you know, pretty hollow threat. And kind of returns us to like the issue of what in the hell is wrong with the Obama administration? And like Norman Solomon's comments made on this on the Insight program on Capitol Public Radio earlier this week when he said that uh, in tried and true political fashion, presidents tend to sort of move away from their base, figuring that you know, they're stuck with me uh, anyway, and start pandering to other groups. It uh, sort of sadly appears to us on this program that Obama is not really doing what his base wants him to do, which no doubt contributed to the debacle last week on the Democrats' loss of so many seats uh, all across the country. Turns out they probably would have done even better had they not run some of these Tea Party candidates that uh, were rejected by voters in in many states. And and speaking of Tea Party, let's digress for a moment. I want to comment from an email sent to us by Gabriel under the title of, Oh, so now you get mad. This is worth quoting from a bit. After eight years of Bush Cheney, now you get mad. You didn't get mad when the Supreme Court stopped a legal recount and appointed a president. You didn't get mad when Cheney allowed energy company officials to dictate energy policy and push us to invade Iraq. You didn't get mad when a covert CIA operative got outed. You didn't get mad when the Patriot Act passed. You didn't get mad when we illegally invaded a country that posed no threat to us. You didn't get mad when we spent over $800 billion and counting on said illegal war. You didn't get mad when George W. Bush borrowed more money from foreign sources than the previous 42 presidents combined. And by the way, his old man and Reagan had borrowed more money than the 39 presidents that came before them. You didn't get mad when over $10 billion in cash just disappeared in Iraq. You didn't get mad when you found out we were torturing people. You didn't get mad when Bush embraced trade and outsourcing policies that shipped 6 million jobs out of the country. You didn't get mad when the government was illegally wiretapping Americans. You didn't get mad when we didn't catch bin Laden. You didn't get mad when Bush ran up $10 trillion in combined budget and current account deficits after being handed a surplus, by the way. Remember how Al Gore was pilloried in the debate because he wasn't going to give the surplus back in quite the ready fashion Bush intended? You didn't get mad when lack of oversight and regulations from the Bush administration caused U.S. citizens to lose $12 trillion in investments, retirement, and home values. Concluding, but finally, you did get mad. You got mad when a black man was elected president and decided that people in America deserve the right to see a doctor if they're sick. And that makes you angry. Not illegal wars, lies, corruption, torture, job losses by the millions, stealing your tax dollars to make the rich richer, and the worst economic disaster since 1929. That was all okay. But this thing called Obamacare? 
Boy, that's got you mad. I have to say, I pretty much agree with that email. Although, the opinions expressed in it, like the opinions expressed on this program, of course, do not necessarily represent those of KDVS, our sponsors, or the regents of the University of California. Maybe California voters weren't quite ready to legalize pot for fun yet, but it's clear that New Scientist magazine was kind of rooting for Prop 19 to pass. They had a large editorial titled, Time to Legalize Marijuana, which they say the case for legalization is clear. Recreational drug use is as old as humanity and has not been eradicated by even the most draconian laws. Making possession and supply of weed illegal has done little to limit its availability. Instead, it opens up an opportunity for criminal gangs, wrecks the lives of users who are branded with a criminal record, and distracts the police from more important work. Legalization would allow the supply of marijuana to be regulated, just as the governments worldwide regulate alcohol. Legal marijuana can also be taxed. Noted an article in New Scientist by Jim Giles, uh, a tax of $2 per gram would bring in an estimated $1.4 billion per year in taxes. One thing I really found odd was an article in Newsweek by Eve Conant noting that, uh, well, the title was Pot and the GOP, asking if the party of Just Say No was morphing into the party of Just Say Grow. There's one quote from that article in Newsweek that I did like. It pointed out how William F. Buckley, the founder of National Review had always mocked those who called marijuana a gateway drug to addiction, saying it was on the order of saying that every rapist begins by masturbating. The article speculates how the effort to, uh, to legalize pot may need to come from the right wing, based on the Nixon goes to China phenomenon. If you're too young to remember this, back in the 1970s when Richard Nixon opened the door to Communist China, his uh, anti-communist credentials may have been what allowed him to do so. If someone on the left had tried it, they would have been pilloried by the right wing. We will, of course, continue to follow this story. Three final items. Uh, I, I'm still I'm holding in my hand right now one of, the, one of the most remarkable pieces of campaign literature I received. It's from the failed effort of Tony Strickland to get elected controller. There's a picture of his of his opponent. John Chang, looking looking exactly like Kim Jong-il. It's printed in red ink. Chang has his hand in the air in a photo that makes him look slightly deranged. So I guess the ghost of Richard Nixon was animating the Tony Strickland campaign. When Nixon first ran for uh, Congress and Senate, he was fond of making comparisons of his opponents to the voting records of socialists in, uh, in Congress, of which I guess there were one or two. When he ran against Helen Gahagan Douglas for Senate, he had, to, had items printed up on pink paper, referring to her as the pink lady. Pink, as in pinko. You know, someone who doesn't quite demonstrate the red flag of communism, but is tinted in that direction. I don't want to go without, uh, without passing on Jimmy Kimmel's remark uh, the day after the election from uh, last Wednesday that said, Thousands of marijuana enthusiasts went to the polls this morning in California to support Prop 19. Unfortunately, the election was the day before. Anyway, pretty good line, wouldn't you say, Mr. McMillan? Never mind. All right, and final item from the political front will come from writer Dave Delgado, who took time to write the Sacramento Bee about the election. Said Dave, now that the election's over, it's time to say a word of thanks. 
Thanks to President Obama and the Democrats who took a golden opportunity in history, similar to what President George W. Bush after 9-11, and turned it into disaster due to their incompetence and spineless inability to govern and communicate. And thanks to the Republicans for being negative, sore loser obstructionists who had no intention of working with the Democrats to begin fixing the enormous problems the Obama administration inherited, but instead were consumed with regaining power. But most of all, thanks to much of the voting age American public, an impatient, ill-informed, finger-pointing, self-righteous, overfed, short-attention-span group of people once again taken in by outrageous claims and lies, catchphrases, quick fixes, and promises you can have everything you want and not have to pay for it. Thanks a bunch. And try as I might, I don't see any winners here. Just a bunch of losers. And on that short, bittersweet note, let's take a break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll come back and talk about what happened to Joe Wilson and Valerie Plame. In this time, give it to me easy. And let me try with pleasured hands to take you in this time to promised lands to show you What's your name? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? Is he rich like me? Has he taken us any time to show you? 